Hey, what's up, guys? Lucas Burnley here. You are listening to the Edge and Flow podcast. I'm here with my co-host, TJ Schwartz. How's it going, TJ? Going great. Looking All right, man. So <laughs> today is today's a fun one. Um, but before we get into what we're actually talking about, uh, I wanted to ask you, how is your employee situation working out? Going, going great. Yeah, he's been in, we talked about in the last episode, and about five hours a day-ish, six hours a day all week this week. It's been really good. Uh, j- like I said, I have just a pile of work. So I've been kind of shifting him around to a couple different things, seeing what he likes, what what where his skills are working good. He's he's a Cerakoter, so he's done tons of blasting. He's really good at it. Didn't have to train him at all. He did a bunch of blasting on like just G10 for me, yeah. um, like a bunch, you know. And then uh, he's been stoning some blades and doing I, – I got him started to train on Kydex. We haven't dove into that yet. Uh, but, yeah, it's been going really good been very productive he understand he understands finish yeah that's, that's what i'm hearing yeah, he's right? a he's so, a perfectionist like yeah everything he's done it's been if there's a flaw in what he did he points it out before i even know before i even have a chance to look Man, at I love it. it okay so yeah. i think what i think we we got to swing back around to this maybe in an, yeah. another week or two weeks or something yeah and really check in on like what that time looked like mm-hmm. uh anything else we want to like just house cleaning before we get into this episode yeah so red x day is no more that'll be the last Done. last time we say that because we've renamed it and yes. we renamed it because of a conflict of interest with another name of that origin. So what it is, is a downshift and we're dropping the word day. It is a, it is a verb, not a noun. It's like we are doing a downshift. Right. So the 21st of this month is the day we do a downshift. And I like it. there's a play on words there because it's a downshift is what you do before you slow down. And it's what you do before you stomp on the gas. It, <sighs> it's it. And also it's a shift. It's like you're working a shift. So you kind of think of it as like my shift today is going to be doing this. You know, there are levels, there's levels, there are levels in the name. Yeah. Oh, power so we got we got to get some some graphics going on that because that is that is like i said it's a it's an offspring of this podcast that i think is gonna have a life of its own i hope at least it will in my life so the downshift i am working towards my downshift year it's going to be awesome yep yeah (laughs) there you go all right okay so those those things out of the way all right uh what we got going on today is TJ promised that he would let me interview him around his CAD process. And that is exactly what it is. It is a process. It is not haphazard. It is not accidental. It is very well thought out. And I think you guys are going to probably find it pretty interesting. I'm excited to dig into it a little bit more. Um, and so... Yeah, we're also going to see if I can interview someone because I've actually never done this. So it's going to be fun. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna get into it. All right, just right out of the gate, um, how long have you been doing CAD? It would be 2012 okay. that I started, and it was SolidWorks. Okay. So Eleven years. Yeah, I was in college, and I had a semester where we started to learn SolidWorks. Okay. Yeah. And just as like a it's a weird, I guess a weird one starting in that process. Like you're learning it around things that aren't knife related, right? Mm-hmm. You're just learning, you're learning cat. Mm-hmm. Um, how long 
before you feel that you achieved like a basic level of proficiency? A basic level of proficiency? I would say probably a year where it was like relatively proficient, but it's a, a lot of these CAD programs or products that there's doors you can open almost infinitely. It's like when you think you're proficient, then you, there's this one tab that you've always ignored and you open that. And then there's like a new degree of proficiency you have to reach with that new part of the program. But like just the, the nuts and bolts, I mean, probably within a year. Okay. And in that first year, how many hours a week do you think you were actually spending working on CAD? Um, it was really broken up. It was like long, long is tip like picture the typical college life where it's like I set aside a couple of days and just like long 10 hour days of CAD and then back to doing schoolwork. But it was probably I was doing it in the margins all the time. And I was like going in before I had a license to actually do it. I was doing it right. in like the computer lab in Boise State. But it has you're asking how many total hours in that year? Yeah. Like, like just over a week, like as, as you're starting to practice, even like if you think total, like weekly, what were you, how many hours were you spending in CAD environment? Maybe 10 a week, 10 hours a week, something like that. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's actually a significant amount of time. I just wanted to try to get like a baseline for people to understand like where your philosophy around CAD is, is kind of developing as mm-hmm. we go. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is explain to people who may not know what CAD is. Yeah. CAD, C-A-D, computer aided design. It is a very broad term. It's kind of like CNC. When you say yep. CNC, computer numerically controlled, people think mill could mean lathe, could mean 3D printer. CAD's a little Laser, bit the same whatever. way. CAD it refers to like fluid dynamics. So like if you're an HVAC company, you might use CAD to figure out how big the air ducts need to be for a given building size. If you're an auto manufacturer, you might have a wind tunnel CAD program. If you're, you know, it it could be any number of things. Like the dentist office I go to uses CAD to create like crowns, you know, because they they 3D scan your teeth. And so this is is applied to almost any industry that involves making a physical thing now. And, but the CAD that we're talking about is what's referred to as parametric modeling and parametric modeling is a type of CAD where you are creating a solid model. Like if you've seen in an image or video where you like spin the 3d model around of a knife or whatever, that it's not for artistic purposes. It's not for CGI. It's not for 3d printing necessarily. It's for manufacturing and parametric means that these shapes and uh 3d images that you see those are mathematically defined shapes so they're arcs they're straight lines points circles whereas a non-parametric program would be like if you're making a video game and you want a knife in the video game you're using i don't know it's more of a mesh i think is the right word for it right where it's like it's actually just a bunch of triangles that just approximates what that looks like for like visual purposes, but you can't submit that to like a CNC manufacturer and then be like, Oh yeah, we'll make it right away. You know, they would have to convert it to a parametric format to then make it. Right. Yeah. So you're essentially creating a physical model inside of a virtual environment. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
So obviously like this translates very well to what we do. Um, and you actually touched on a great point, which is because CAD is so kind of broad spectrum. One of the things that we're going to really dig into again is around your process, which it's, it's the first time that I've run into a, a progression like yours. So if you're really familiar with CAD or, or may, and maybe this exists outside of, or maybe the way that you're working is like a learned, uh, a learned like, um, process around like engineering. I'm very curious to hear that because to me it was super unique. Um, all right, where do we go after this, man? Oh, the other thing I guess is I'm going to, I'm going to actually ask for your help here mm -hmm. because your understanding of CAD compared to mine, there's questions that I probably am not going to know to ask. Mm -hmm. So if you see anything that you really want to expand on, or like you, you think that I'm like missing, okay. please, please chime in. One, one, ask the question. one quick aside, just a, a, a metaphor I've given for what I just described. If you're, have any familiarity with like Adobe products, there's good like parallels I can draw. So if you've done like graphic design, Photoshop, right? So like a JPEG image is just pixels. If you stretch it out, you get big pixels and it just looks like yep. crap. Yep. That is the same thing as like a mesh. So like these yep. programs that are making mesh files that are for visual only, that's like a JPEG. Parametric is like the equivalent of a vector file that it's actually defined in terms of like paths. And so when you stretch it, there's not actually a loss of like, there's no consequences there. It's, it's, right. it's all informational. Actually yeah. scales. Yeah. And so that that's like, just as an introduction to CAD, I, I've told people that like, think of parametric as a vector. If you're used to like graphic design. Great, great, great analogy. That is like, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, man. Well, let's like, let's kind of dig into it. So, just as like a little background of where I started to experience the way that you work in CAD versus the way that I was working in CAD was, was it a year or two years ago that I came to you and asked if you would tutor me in fusion 360. Okay. At that point, you actually hadn't worked in fusion 360. Yeah, barely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is like the first thing I want to touch on, which is nuts to me. So I come to you and I'm like, Hey, I really want to learn this software. It, it were, it, I guess I say thanks, but it operates in a way that I'm unfamiliar with. I'm coming from Rhino, right? Which is not solid modeling. Um, you can achieve like the same results, but I wasn't using it as that. I was doing primarily two dimensional CAD. Right. Mm -hmm. And then building my kind of like two and a half D inside of cam for the things that I was machining. Mm -hmm. So I see the power of fusion 360. It's super user friendly. It's got all these like really neat tools. And I realized like, okay, this is where I need to go. Mm -hmm. You at this point are working fully in SolidWorks. Uh, the only, the only nuance to that is when I do my machine programming. So, yep. That's referred to as CAM, computer-aided machining. I use Fusion for CAM, and I use Fusion to design fixtures. But when I design a knife, like when I'm artistically starting to design a knife, I use SolidWorks. 
This is current. What about back when we first started talking about fusion versus when we first started SolidWorks? I, I, I basically was ready to completely jump ship and go all. I was SolidWorks for years, for almost a decade, yeah. and I was okay. ready when we started talking. You calling me and asking me to help you with like a transition to fusion, I took as like the final straw that was like I'm finally going to jump ship and go to all right. fusion. And I think that's the right move in a lot of cases. I think fusion has more to offer in many ways. But I got into a position after whatever it's been a year, 18 months, where I realized there are a couple of weaknesses that Fusion has that I don't want to live with because I know the alternative that SolidWorks has. It has some powerful features that I think are superior, but it's got SolidWorks has more weaknesses, but there's a couple strengths that I can't put away like I need. them. Okay. I want I want to go back into that, mm-hmm. but I want to swing back around to it once we kind of dig into your process a mm-hmm. little bit. Okay. So like overall in the time that we spent together, the biggest takeaway I think that I had was the concept of a robust model. Mm-hmm. This is something that I had never really thought of right? Like I go into CAD and I start drawing and I like draw the part. You kind of exploded that for me. Like I can't unsee it. Okay. So if, if we're going to start to talk about the idea of what a robust CAD model means to you, like where is our starting point? Like mm-hmm. where does the, where does that foundational principle begin for you? And where did you first encounter it? So the big, be- where it begins is the phrase, the process is the product (laughs) (laughs) because it perfectly works for this, but But that didn't exist around this arbitrary point in the past. Yeah. Right. But yeah, so I, they, like when I had this, uh, this instructor, he was an adjunct professor. So he wasn't a professor. He was actually an engineer and he was coming in just to teach this one class. And he was a smart guy and he would kind of go on about this, about like setting up models to be robust. And just because you have two models where if you look at them and roll them around, even if the model, what you're looking at is identical, one can be totally broken and one can be perfect and they look the same. Right. And that's like, and and so having the structure of how it was designed in CAD matters, right? It, it matters a lot as, to, as far as how functional this model is going to be. And he, he was mentioning that, but it never, it didn't stick until I had a couple years of experience and realizing like what makes these models hard to come back to. Like, let's say I want to dig back into a model or let's say I decide the blade is too short. It's whatever. I need to change it. If, if I did it wrong, or if I had like questionable approaches to modeling it, then doing anything to change stuff becomes problematic like things break the program starts to scream at you like you get errors like anybody that's used CAD long enough knows like how frustrating it frustrating it is when you try to change something and it just totally barks at you and just like just crashes like I mean the program stays open but like the whole model your whole timeline goes red like everything's just broken and you don't know how to fix it knowing with enough experience you'll know why that was happening and what led to that And so having a robust model where from the very first sketch that you do, you have it set up to be ready to change, if that makes sense. Total makes total sense. Initially, 
I had this feeling of like modularity where I realized I'm like, oh, okay. So the way that we're working is going to essentially allow me down the road to make corrections or changes that don't then break features designed after that yeah, point. Yeah. And that is something <clears throat> that I think is pretty rare. Um, and it, but it makes perfect sense because like, as we kind of iterate and evolve a design, a lot of times you make it to a point and you're like, Ooh, I would like to change that back there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like with a program like fusion uh, and, and obviously SolidWorks, you have things in your timeline that are linked so that if you change this line or whole location, it's also changing like the modeled feature based on that sketch. Yeah. Right. So I looked at it as the easiest way for me to kind of compartmentalize it was like, okay, I'm making like a modular design where I have yeah. these features that stand independently, but are linked to the whole. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of this comes down to like good practices around your, I want to say like file organization, but like your sketch organization and like the way that you're actually setting up each feature. So can you talk a little bit about the process of like, say, say someone like myself who is bringing in, I hand sketch some kind of, you know, rough, you know, design and I bring it into CAD. Can you kind of outline like the initial steps you take to like set yourself on this path to like a robust model. Yeah. There's, okay. there's one thing I would start out with first and I, you, you kind of said it, but I hear it all the time is there's a lot of people that say I have a design. I just need to put it into CAD. Like you've right. heard that exact phrase I have. I would hesitate to think that way at all because in CAD, things are going to become noticeable and visible yep. that you w aren't able to to have on like a two-dimensional page when you're drawing. Yep. And it's like, I try to make sure that the process, like sketching first is awesome. And I do do that a lot of the time, but the actual, it's critical that you do look at CAD as a design tool, not yes. just as an engineering tool. Um, right. And I think that's where there's a misconception out there that like you completely design the knife and then you put it into CAD well, then it wouldn't be called CAD because CAD is computer aided design, right. right? We're like, would you, would you, would you say that having an idea yeah. to input into yeah. CAD is a more fitting descriptor? Yeah. Yeah. A starting point, right. like a concept, yeah. a concept, like a con right. Yeah. Concept drawing. Yeah. Right. So say I'm importing a concept drawing. Yeah. Now I'm ready to do my design work. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And the only, so you've done it. And the only reason I stress that a little bit is in the early days, I would, I was a pencil guy. I like, I'm yeah. not dissing on sketching knives because I used to sketch knives to like extreme detail. And I, the reason I got away from it is there is, especially with a folder, there is the possibility that things are not going to work out the way you hoped. Yeah. Maybe the blade fits in the handle, but like maybe this detent ball track isn't going to be where you want it. Maybe this stop pin, all of a sudden this flipper tab and stop pin situation is problematic. It's, it's possible to foresee that like you do with like a light table and you're actually figuring that out. Yep. But if you get overly artistic on paper and then you bring it into CAD and you're starting to do the model, I would rather figure all that stuff out before I'm too invested into like perfecting this shape. You know what I mean? Hundred and, and so it's like, if it's like just, like my sketches are now a lot 
weaker in terms of how final and finished they look than what they used right. to. But that's intentional because right. I'd rather spend the time in CAD to to do that. And so uh, I guess to answer your question, though, like once you have the sketch in CAD, setting up, knowing where you're going to need to po- probably tweak it is you, you kind of want to know ahead of time, like if you don't have a, a prototype yet, you've never made this thing, like you're ideally you're going to 3D print this thing at some point to then right. get a hand on it. So in your head, you're thinking, I'm going to do it this way, but I think it's it's going to maybe have to scale up or down for like these finger grooves to actually work. I might They may have to get bigger or smaller. Making sure that things like the scale, when you change the frame shape or the liner, the scale changes with it and, and things like that. So right. that once you come back, you've 3D printed it, now it's time to adjust. I think I might have mentioned to you one time... Uh, I'm trying to remember how I put it. It's like you're creating a a knife that has like handles on it for tweaking. Right. And so it's like it's like imagine if you if you've ever handmade a knife or handmade anything, imagine if you could like build a shed and then when it's done, just like grab the corner and make it a little bigger. And then like right. grab, and the door changes with it. Yeah, and the door right. doesn't break and like yeah. the tr- you you get you know, studs on 16 inch centers, even when you stretch it out and like the roof, right. you can change the pitch and things change, you know, like you imagine the power of having like the ability to retroactively like tweak. And that yeah. is what you want. And in if it's set up in a like finicky way, that's not really possible. And you'll end up feeling like you have to settle because it's like, you don't want to spend two days like unbreaking your model because you move the lanyard hole or whatever. So let, let's like dive into finicky for a second. So mm-hmm. when I first came into fusion, I would go into the environment and I would start sketching. We're going to use like a fixed blade as an example. Mm-hmm. So I would draw my like tang or blade. I would start, I would in the same sketch, I would add my scale. I would add all my hole locations just on top of that. And that was like right out of the gate, a habit that you broke me up. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, those things are all, they're all separate. Mm. Right. So when you think of a finicky model, are there, are there really specific things that kind of like come to mind so, in, from a setup process? So a couple things, uh, especially in fusion. So fusion and SolidWorks have some differences, but I'm going to try to stick to mostly fusion on this okay. conversation because I think that's what everyone's using. Uh, I like SolidWorks for certain things, but I don't think it's most listeners are probably not doing that, but yeah. Infusion, the timeline they call on the bottom of the screen. They call it a timeline for a reason. It is a literal timeline. It's chronological. So one thing to keep in mind is if you sketch something and you don't really like it and something's weird about it, you don't go and then create another timeline item to modify it. So like a, a mistake I made early on would be like, let's say I make an outline of the scale. Then I use an extrude function to make it an eighth of an inch thick. And then I get down the road, right? I get like a a day into the design and I think, you know, that scale, that liner, whatever is 125 thick. I'd rather be three eighths or three sixteenths thick. You don't extrude more onto it to thicken it. You go back to the place, the original extrusion where you made it 125. Yep. And you make it thicker. 
And so that's one of the things is like, if you get where you have like an extrusion that made it an eighth and then down where right. downstream of that and another extrusion that made it a 16th thicker, then you're probably not going to be able to tweak and refine that without getting confused as to why there's all these features like doing similar things. Right. And so generally the shorter the timeline, like the, the shorter the timeline, the better that is like, I right. would say that's a don't, law. don't do more work yeah. than is needed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you would end up at the same place. You would end up with a three eighths scale, yeah. but th- this way of like adding on would give you like essentially a false, a false part yeah. because it's actually not one piece that's extruded. It's now two pieces that are like almost yeah. glued together. Yeah for lack of a yeah. better term. And, and that's okay. where you get the domino effect that, like I said, when you start breaking things is like, if you did something and then did something to modify that thing and then did another thing to modify that thing and you change the first thing, it can have a knockdown effect of like, right. just a just getting like a runaway basical, basically like failure of all everything downstream. And so right. the simpler it is, the better. Okay. So that's like, that's like the first concept. Mm-hmm. Keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. Right. Um, trying to think like where to go after that from, and, and I think a lot of these, I think a lot of these concepts, they transfer around to different CAD programs. Um, like Rhino works different in that it doesn't have like the same type of time timeline. Mm -hmm. I was used to working in layers, like, which essentially I used as sketches. Seems a little bit more like Adobe products. Yeah, totally. I think that's much more accurate, right? And if you're using Rhino for three, like real 3D stuff, that's beyond like my understanding of it. So I can't like speak intelligently about it, but from the, from like the 2D, two and a half D standpoint, that's kind of what it feels like, Mm -hmm. right? You're doing like line drawings and then you're kind of like creating, you know, walls and and like, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a cap. Yeah. To like, create like a solid, like a loft. You're, you're, you're using surfaces as opposed yeah. to like solid modeling. As yeah. opposed to like solid modeling. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So we have this basic concept, which is as we're, as we're starting to build our model, the way that we're organizing our drawing is incredibly important to like downstream effect. Mm-hmm. We know that we want to keep it as simple as possible. Okay. With fusion, I, I found that where I thought the techniques of like drawing and modeling were going to be the critical components. It was actually the file setup, Mm -hmm. the workflow and the constraints. Okay. So can we talk like, which one of those do you, would you prioritize first? I think having a good file organization method and workflow organization method, it's, it's just like, you don't want to form bad habits. It's the same thing with anything you do. It's like, I would try to focus on understanding. It's easy to just open a tab and start doing stuff. Yep. I understand that like that. I'm not saying that's not a good idea because you still need to learn some of the ideas about around sketches, extrusion. What do these things do? Like you can just kind of play and see what these things do. But actually if you're good, if your goal is to like move towards say modeling a knife, that's like a semi-complex assembly you have to know how to set those files up because if you have like there's components, there's assemblies, there's bodies, there's a few terms there that if you don't have a definition for in your head or like haven't wrapped your head around, you can get to where you're like excited about a design, but because the file setup was kind of goofy, it's like 
really hard to reverse or undo the way that it was set up. Yep. Without just so let's restarting. let's dig into that a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as if, if we're using a fixed blade as an example, and only reason I'm using that is it's you know folded with less parts. Yeah. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it obviously doesn't fold. Uh, what's your what's your file setup when you start sketching? So with a fixed blade, you have your your hardware components, but mainly you've just got the tang and your two scales. I'm just going to keep it basic just for this yep. conversation. If you in fusion, you want each of those things to be its own component. Now, component and body are two different things. So a body is a solid element in the design space, but a component can be comprised of multiple bodies. Now, let me explain. So if you had a, let's say you're designing a knife and you want to put a ball bearing in it, and it was like a caged ball bearing, that cage ball bearing for this, this purpose, you would, you would probably design it as a component that has like 12 bodies because it's got all these little balls. It's got the cage, but it's a component, right? Right. And so when you design a knife, you don't want it to be set up that way. You want the scales to each be a component and the tang to be a component. You don't want the whole knife to be a component made up of these different bodies. Not right. hopefully that's not hard to follow, but anything that you plan on making as its own part needs to be a component. And then when you have multiple components in a file, it's an assembly. So multiple bodies can be in a component. Multiple components by default makes an assembly. Right. So if you're planning, like I'm not planning on making each individual ball bearing. So right. that all is going to be one component of bodies. Right. I am so planning on making this. What scales. about two sets of scales? Right. So you have you have two scales. That's not one component. Those are two individual yeah, two components. Two different components. A left and a right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you start with a fixed blade, you start with the tang. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're you're going in and you're creating a sketch around the concept of a tang. So we're talking the profile shape of the knife. Yeah. Okay. What information do you include? in that tang. So when I, I want to have a outside perimeter sketch and you can put the hole, like I have on my fixed blades, three holes, quarter inch holes in the handle of the knife. I would say it's probably fair and good to have the holes for the tang in the first sketch. So your like very first item on the entire timeline is a sketch where you're doing the perimeter of the shape of the knife. So let's say you have your actual hand-drawn sketch like imported and you're tracing that or you're Mm -hmm. like roughly basing it on that. That's your first sketch. And then you can have the holes if you would like. And I tend to do that. Or you can have the second sketch be the holes and and you're cutting through the original extrusion. And right. And I would say both of those two ways would be I could see why you would do it either way. And I don't think it mattered that much. I think so relating this to making things completely by hand, which is kind of how I've interacted or understood CAD up to this point. For me, it makes sense to do the holes in the initial sketch. Yeah. I, right? I think that's what, what I it, almost always What do. it doesn't make sense for me to do is something like maybe like jimping or like yeah. some detail that I'm thinking about yeah. adding later. Yeah. 
or that may change or the location may change. And so this basic concept is like allowing each component to only have it's like true information, yeah. like the true yeah. necessary information that makes that component. And I will say, let me let me nuance what I said earlier, because I said make everything the shorter the timeline, the better. Yeah, that's that's a general law. But there's what you just touched on is an important point, And that is you don't want every piece of information about that knife in one single sketch, because from a file management standpoint, like you said, if you had the jimping in there. If you had the holes, if you had like a bunch of radius, like if that first sketch gets too busy, it's harder to adjust, right? Because let's, it, it becomes more likely to break that initial sketch if it's like just overloaded with info. Yeah. And so I do try to have my sketches be as simple as possible. So like the shape of the knife with the holes and I won't even like on the overland, like where the, like the butt of the knife, the pommel. It's got like kind of angular, but it's rounded on the corners. I, when my first sketch is drawn in there, those are actually not rounded in the sketch. Those are nine, those are actually like cusps. So your, your corners, you're not champering or filleting them in the first, you are sketch. leaving them yeah. in that first sketch. You're just leaving it a hard angle, yeah. which is if I was going to go to the bandsaw, I wouldn't try to apply my fillet on the bandsaw. Right. That is a controlled process on a grinder at a later point. Yeah. So this is like the parallels between the way that you design in CAD and the way that something might be manufactured completely by hand. I think there's actually a lot of um, yeah. comparisons that can be made. There are parallels. And <clears throat> and I would say one of the one of the main reasons though is like, again, I want to design things that have handles that I can grab and move. Right. If I have the shape of the overland and all the corners are literally sharp in a sketch, and let's say I wanted to stretch that handle in the back or change the angle of one of those lines, I can grab the actual point and move it a little bit. Right. Whereas if it had a had another radius in there, what do you grab to move? Because if you grab, unless you've done CAD before, this is hard to understand, but like if there's not like a clear thing to grab and drag a little bit, like it'll just kind of get wonky on you and you need like right. something specific and clear to like actually be able to adjust it. And so don't make your sketches simple enough that you can look at it and say, I can click and move here. I can drag this. And if you have, like I said, jimping fillets and all this other stuff going on, it's more likely to get just troublesome. Right. That makes, that makes perfect yeah. sense. So, okay. So basically I'm trying to think kind of, as far as like where, where we're taking that. So you're, you're not adding your fillets. That's like a really, really important kind of detail. Cause it tells where the level of work or like how far into the design you're actually going before you create a solid model. Mm -hmm. Okay. So super interesting. So that's your, that's your first component, right? <clears throat> this also works, uh, relating it to making something by hand because you're probably not going to start with the scales first. Mm -hmm. You're going to start with the, the, the primary component. So if it's a folder, yeah. you're starting with the blade and the liners or frame, uh, you're, or a fixed blade, you're starting with the, the tang and then you're building the, the yeah. rest of the knife around that usually. So, okay. You have component one, you have a sketch tied to this component. It is now robust because you can go back to the sketch and modify the, 
body, yep. essentially. Yep. Okay. So this process now, is it just like, like rinse and repeat, right? Moving into a scale? So with the scale, there is a difference. So with the, okay. there is a parent geometry, like two words, a parent. If you have the, the tang in a fixed blade, I use as the parent. And that's what you okay. were just describing. It's just like you hand make a knife, you'd make the tang, you would put like a rectangular piece of G10 on there, epoxy on or whatever. And then you, you're grinding the G10 to match the tang. Right. You know what I mean? Like the tang is the driver. That's it's the profile. Yeah. And so that's what I do. So I have the tang, right? And I only take it so far. So I get it like roughly a silhouette that I like. And then I create a new component that is the the left side scale because I'm looking at it from the show side. And I don't ever mess with the right side scale until the design is almost completely done because there's no reason to like try to keep up on the right hand side or try to get it where you want it. When you on a fixed blade, it is symmetrical enough that you know I'm just going to mirror this when I'm done kind of thing. But I create a component and bring it in and I create that new component. The first sketch on the timeline is a series of projections where I'm stealing the the geometry, the actual tool in fusion is called a projection tool. I'm stealing the geometry from the parent, which is the tang. Yep. And I'm using that to drive the shape of the scale. And they're two separate components, but they can steal geometry from each other. So when I change the overland, like if I, the tang, if I pull on like the pommel and then refresh the screen, refresh the program, it's going to also change the scale to match. Right. And that's the goal because I don't want to have to manually like do a circular thing. Right. So this is, this is tying back into this idea of, of, robust, right? Which is if you make a change upstream, Mm. (laughs) it changes the parts downstream, right? You could very easily just go in and draw a scale on top of your, you could leave your, your sketch up for your tang and you could draw a scale on top of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is probably what I would have done. The ability to actually use that geometry to drive your next sketch as it progresses through a knife Mm -hmm. is where it starts to be like very, very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So same thing with this. So you're, you're creating something like a scale. You have this sketch, you've projected your whole locations Mm -hmm. and your, and, and then essentially used, say you're doing something like offset scale, like on the Overland, you're using the projection to offset from and to create the scale shape. Now, the beauty is just like if the tank shape changes, if you want to move your screw holes or your lanyard holes, you don't do that in the scale. Well, I guess if they're linked back and forth, you can, right? No, it's one way. way. It's one way. So there's there's great point. You go back to your tang. Mm -hmm. You move those hole locations. It updates the hole locations in your scale. Yep. Okay. These are the kind of things that like accidentally happen in CAD, like working in Rhino often where you're like, oh, you just didn't know. I forgot to lock something and I like nudged it. Yeah. And I go and machine something and I'm like, why don't these, why don't they line up? Mm -hmm. You're creating redundancy in like the uh, solidity and like, I guess, security of the model. Yeah. Yeah. It's harder to actually make a human error. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's right. 
so from this point, you you've got all this geometry kind of passed through, projected in, and now some new geometry in the 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 um, scale. Now you're going to go through and you're going to basically extrude that again. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're only working on one side. You're working on the left side. You do the same thing when you do the tang, right? Like, which this is where it starts to kind of shift away from how you make something by hand. Because in general, you're modeling like half tang thickness. Mm -hmm. Because as we get further into the design and you add more and more detail, you're not wanting to have to do that work twice on both sides of the knife. Is that correct? So one thing, one thing to, to kind of wrap your head around with something like fusion is you have the ability to time travel. So when you're in, when you're in your shop making a knife, you don't have the ability to try and time travel. So you have to do the things that need to be done chronologically perfectly every time in the physical world. But in this you don't. So what I, what you were just explaining is like, if I'm making a fixed blade and I'm going to have, I'm actually going to model the bevels. I'm going to have chamfers. I'm going to have things that need mirrored that are going to be on the opposite side as well. So the Overland is 140 thou thick. The first extrusion I would do from that initial sketch would be 70 thou thick. That's half of the Overland. I would then mirror it, even though all it is is a extrusion. But I would remember everything that I am doing on the front side that I also want on the back side, I will scroll back in time to before I mirrored it and do it. And then I can scroll back forward to see the results. So it is wild. So you don't have to, like, I can do the bevels as the last thing in this, in days of work. I don't do that, but like I could, I could have the bevel be the very last step. All I would have to do is scroll back to before I did the mirror, put the bevel on that side and then scroll forward again. And it all is good. So it's like, I, yeah. I can go and do other stuff. Like I don't have to think chronologically and I'm not bound right. to that. So all you have to remember is like setting it up as a half extrusion and a mirror as the very first step, like it's the third thing in the timeline gives you the ability to only have one mirror in the whole model because that one mirror is doing it. Right. A, the, so you do that directly. So for some reason, I thought that was like further downstream. Well, the less robust like, way to do it would be to then, would be to make it 140, do a bevel, mirror the bevel with a, with a feature mirror, then right. do a chamfer, mirror that, then do whatever else you have, go, fuller, and then mirror that. And then you have all right. these mirrors and you don't know which one's going to which. But right. if you have one mirror in the timeline and everything before that mirror is stuff that you know is going to be on both sides and everything after is something only right. on one side, like my logo or something. So there is, there's, there's like a law right there, right? Which is we're going back to this, like don't do more work than needed, mm-hmm. but you're also now creating this idea of only do the work that is necessary to a point mm-hmm. because you're saying that like, yeah, like obviously this is going to need to be mirrored, but once you have your perimeter shape, and your basic extrusion on a, on a knife that is going to be symmetrical. We know that everything from that point is going to be mirrored. If you scroll back again, yeah, you'll see the mirror in the timeline. It says it's a, yeah. it's a little triangle. That's a mirror em- emblem. Yeah. If you're looking at your model and you're like, 
oh, I want to add some feature that's on both sides. Yep. So quickly scroll back, do it, scroll back forward to get all your other stuff that you did. And it, it's like, yep. as long you can, like I said, you have the ability to time travel. You have the ability to go yep. back in time and do something before you mirrored it. You don't have yep. to add another mirror every time you do something that needs mirrored. Just go back in time to before you mirrored it and do it then. You know what I mean? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, we've got our two main components for, for you know, essentially, you got your Tang and, and your first scale, mm-hmm. okay? At what point do you actually start surface modeling, for lack of a better word, and where does that start? So, like, when you start to actually, like, sculpt or contour or remove material from these extrusions, where is your starting point? So, this is a great point. This is where we really get into the the nuts and bolts of SolidWorks versus Fusion. And this is where mm-hmm. these CAD programs come alive in a sense. Because extrusions, chamfers, holes, like this is stuff you can just quickly do on YouTube. Like it's it's kind of the like it's the generic fusion-y stuff. Well, when I do when I model my scales on, say, a fixed blade, there's two ways to do it. There's two ways really to model anything. The first one is solid modeling, which is like you're talking about where you extrude it. You take your perimeter sketch of your scale, you extrude it to like whatever quarter inch thick or whatever. And then you start chamfering it. You start like taking slots out of it. You start putting counter bores in it. You start doing things that like remove material as if you're sculpting. Right. That is the foundational, like that's usually how everyone starts doing it. The other way that I do a lot nowadays is surface modeling, which is what you were talking a little bit about in Rhino. And that is Mm -hmm. instead of starting with like a solid block and you're removing material, you are actually designing the surfaces themselves. So like you're creating a prism of surfaces that then become solid when you're finished rather than starting with a solid block and cutting away. So it's like it's like you're creating a a mold cavity that then is going to get filled in. And it's like a hollow vessel. It's a hollow. Like you're creating it's, a vessel yeah. as opposed to starting with a, a block of wood yeah. and carving things yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and so this is where SolidWorks is better. I'm going to say that pretty much unequivocally. It has more powerful 3D surface modeling tools. And I, I'm not the only one to discover that. That's kind of a known thing. And so when I'm trying to do a really organic like 3D surface, it's just SolidWorks is just the way to do it. And so I just, I can use SolidWorks to create it and then I can use Fusion to actually machine it. And that's how right. I do it. And it's a bummer because I'd love it if Fusion was up to speed on that to the degree that I need, but right. it's just not. It's just it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, I mean, and again, you're working in SolidWorks, right? So we're kind of talking about Fusion, but up to this point when you're doing knives, you're in SolidWorks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this, this, translates back and forth. Mm-hmm. So same question though, right? Which is where, where do you start and like process wise mod, like now you have the extrusions, like where do you start like the surface? Yeah. So I'm going to set surface modeling aside Yep. because that could be a, that's a whole different discipline in a lot of ways from what the solid modeling is. So, right. Most people starting out, you're just going to want a solid model because that's how you learn the foundations. So you extrude the scale, right? Then you start using things like fillets. You start using things like chamfers. Those are the very first most basic things. You could have the shape with a chamfer all the way around. 
that could be a way to do it, right? And we see a lot of knives that are this. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's a flat surface with some type of chamfer. That's your part. Yeah, and maybe you're doing an engraving or a texture, and that's how you're dressing yeah. it up. Maybe, you know, it depends on what you're looking for. But yeah. if you want to take it to the next level while still solid modeling, you can do what's called, what I used to use a lot, is what's called the sweep cut. And it's a, you can create a sketch that is a path and a sketch that is a profile and the profile follows the path that you sketched and makes a cut. So you could do like, for example, like if you wanted your handle to be kind of domed, but not like actually a cylinder, you could have that dome kind of curve in a direct one direction or the other or something like that. And so if you look at my design, like the Caligo, you can see it's got kind of scallops that are kind of curved. Those are, those are swept cuts. Those are like scallops made by sweep cut. That wasn't surface mm-hmm. modeled. Right. So many, many different ways to get to the same mm-hmm. end. Some are more efficient or more appropriate. I think this also goes back to not doing more work than is needed because generally one is going to be more efficient than the other, mm-hmm. whether that's due to your skill level or due to the program that you're working with or, or any kind of number of yeah. other variables. Okay. Do you start with scales? Do you start with the blade? Uh, like, well, the blade doesn't really have much of that. I mean, the bevel. Totally, the, but you have like bevel, like thinking yeah, about beveling, yeah. right? So I'm thinking like as we're making this fixed blade, just from a habit standpoint, do you like you do your basic extrusions and then start working on the scales? Yeah, usually I would say. Okay. And and usually I'll get a little ways in and then I'll want the bevel because once you start to refine the balance and the, yeah. the visuals, it's hard to actually do without a bevel. And so it's usually a little bit later that I actually come back and like, yeah, I'm going to put the bevel in there now. I'm, I'm to the point where, for example, lining up the front of my scale with the plunge and making sure that all is like jives the way I want it. That takes a little while to get to where you're even worried about that, if that makes sense. And once you get to that point, then yeah, I go back and put the bevel in. Um, But the bevel is a great uh, question because a lot of people ask, how do you model bevel? There's simple ways to do it that give you the visual impression of a bevel that you can then use for a design uh, input. Right. So it's like, if you want just, I need a bevel on that blade so that I, my, my brain can see the balance of this knife and make sure it looks right. That bevel doesn't necessarily have to be like manufacturable, but I have been trying to get as disciplined as possible about any bevel that I model is modeled in the way that it's actually made. And the reason for that is you may design a, a handle that matches this specific plunge that isn't actually possible with a given technology or way of doing things. And then you may be frustrated because when you go to do it, now your handle was designed in a way that doesn't mesh with what you're actually wanting. Yeah. I think that's like a very important point. And, and I think from a, from a kind of a setup standpoint, like a best practice, I do think that if you are planning on making something, when you're doing your CAD, having an eye on how it will actually be manufactured is super important. It's critical. Both of us submitting designs to companies for production where we're not involved in the production, this is really important, Mm -hmm. right? If there's a lot of, I think there's been a lot of designs submitted over the years where it's like, it's a beautiful design with no eye on how it's actually going to be manufactured. And and this falls under like that you don't know what you don't know and you're a custom Mm -hmm. knife maker and you make it. 
Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is how I do it. Well, they're not going to make it the way that you make it mm-hmm. from a process standpoint. Right. Yeah. So understanding like the tools that you're working with or the tools that a company is working with as you're doing your, your design, I think just lends yeah. to itself to like a much better finished Pro- process oriented design for sure. Process oriented design. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so basically at this point we've got, we've got a flat kind of tang. You haven't modeled your bevels yet. It's weird. I actually relate this to blade grinding. Like for a long time, people, you know, like people, everyone's like, how do you grind a blade? Or as a knife maker, you're worried about grinding the blade at this point. Like grinding a blade is like the least of my concerns. Mm -hmm. It is the least of your concerns for modeling. Yeah. It is the, like some of the largest of my concern modeling because I, you're creating offset planes and like sweeps and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm having to remember all of these different elements. Um, I'm having to remember about constraints and like create like little structures to help this process along. And it's complicated. You're at a point where that's you, you're just like, Oh, okay. I'm time to model the blade. Yep. That works done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we have, we've got this extrusion. We've now you have a modeled scale essentially, because you, now you've gone and you've done whatever surface modeling, right? Solid, solid or models. surface. So, okay. Way. So we'll say solid yeah. modeling, right? So you've done chamfers, fillets, you know, you've created something that has uh, some f- cool form shape to mm-hmm. it. Okay. But we still, at this point, we haven't done the things like the details around the tang, or you haven't done chamfers around the tang, or uh, I, I don't think we've counterboard for screws mm-hmm. in the scales. Mm-hmm. Do you group that type of work? Or does it, do you just kind of do it um, when you want to see it? You made it, you made a good point. Uh, you want as many of the features that the knife is going to have to be in the model as early as possible, because here's the thing you want, you can spend a whole lot of time designing a knife without the timeline tree on the bottom getting any longer at all. And this is the, this right. is the huge thing. If you kind of quickly fill out your timeline on the bottom with all the chamfers you're going to want, all the holes you're going to need, all the counterbores you're going to need, don't worry that much about diameters, size of chamfers, offsets, actual diameter and spacing of jimping. Don't get too fussy about that stuff yet. Get the tree filled out with all the features that it's going to have, right? And then it's kind of like I said with the shed, finish it and then push and pull where you want things changed, right? Right. And so for me, it's like my counterbores, all the chamfers, I'm like racing to get all those in there. Like that's, I just go through and like blast through all that stuff because I know generally what it is that's required to make it what I want. Right. But then I come back and then I almost start designing after that because now it's time to start. How big is the chamfer? Right. What exactly is that radius? What exa- where yeah. exactly is that hole? Is yeah. with the hole looked right? And th- here's why you do it this way. The, maybe the hole looked right in the positioning, like the lanyard hole for say, but the chamfer of the lanyard hole now interferes with the chamfer around the perimeter. Yeah. You want to know that instantly. Like you want to have it all f- kind of laid out so that yeah. you start moving the hole when it's already chamfered. Again, you're going to go back in time. You're going to move right. the hole. And then you're going to go jump forward again and everything's going to repopulate and you're going to see, oh, now my chamfers are where they need to be. Because if you fuss about where that hole is, 
only to waste that time because the chamfers don't work the way you want. Right. You just wasted time, right? Yeah, there. You and I had a lot of back and forth on this because I would be like laying out a hole and be like, "All right, I'm gonna like type in 1.875." You're like, "Don't worry about the size of the hole." Mm-hmm. You're like, "Put it where you want. Like, just drag it out, leave yep. that hole. We're gonna go resize it later." Yep. Yep. And what was cool about that is, I think it actually benefits the creative process because you're not getting mired in these like numerical details and like very kind of like you know, small scale features, you're just able to like do the big iteration. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna like put my holes, boom, boom, boom. Okay. Uh, you go being able to go back and modify lets you, it's almost like, um, like stream of consciousness writing. You're like, all right, I'm just going to like get all of these features. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to like swing back to is from this file management point, essentially. So you have your components. So since you're not adding all of your details at the same time, Anytime you're working on a component, that's where you're going back to, to add your details, Mm -hmm. right? So if we're adding, uh, you know, uh, counterboard holes to a scale, you're going back to your, you know, scale L sketches and you're adding a sketch to that component. Yeah. Right. This is one of the things I think is really powerful is just, it's like the organization to be like, well, okay, well, I'm going to, I need to modify something on the scale. Where do you go? Well, you go to your scale mm-hmm. and inside of that component are all of your files for any change yeah. that you've made to yeah. that scale, which man, just being able to know where the changes were made is so powerful. Fu- yeah. Fusion specifically. This is the biggest, the number one error I see made in CAD in general, but fusion is very much prone to this biggest error you can make is to have the timeline be totally populated with all the stuff you did on the blade, all the stuff you did on the scales, all the stuff you did on the pocket clip, all the stuff you did on the the bevel. Like if you have one timeline for an entire knife, including all of its parts, and you're sitting there scrolling through it, you did it wrong. I'm going to say that like unequivocally. The each component, the reason they need to be components and not bodies is because a component has it can can have its own timeline. Either the assembly can have a mega timeline that's all everything at once, like a giant spaghetti, or because they're each components, you can activate each one and it'll have its own little timeline. So like if it's if it's like your your threaded barrel, that little timeline is going to be like three items. It's like extrude and chamfer. You know what I mean? Like sketch, extrude, chamfer. That's my little threaded barrel. I don't need that like floating around inside of my 3d modeling for my scale. I want that in its own thing. And so like, if you can keep those timelines short by dividing them into their respective components, this is what saves you from like the heartache of these complex. If you've done fusion before and messed around with it, you've probably got to a point where you like, you walk away, you come back a week later and you see your timeline and you're like, Oh my gosh, like how do I change this chamfer? I have to scroll like, all the way around. I can tell you right now for like pretty much any fixed blade you can imagine. If the timeline is exceeding the, the width of the screen and you have to scroll, you're probably, it's probably not refined. You're probably doing something extraneous or you're duplicating something or something's redundant. You know what I mean? Right. Like it should right. be like a quantifiable, like there's six to 15 things down there for every component. You know what I mean? Right. 
And they're, the cool thing about this is for the most part, we're dealing with, it's almost, it's like CNC machining, right? We're working for, as a knife maker, like you're primarily working with the same materials. You're primarily working with like a lot of the same tool sizes. As I'm learning more about CAD, I realize like, oh, like my, my toolbox is kind of the same thing. Where I'm really struggling is around like still like, like with a folder, like the ability to do like mechanical like assemblies and a lot of the, the actual um, like either solid or surface modeling. Right. And that's just muscle memory. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not spending 10 hours a week doing it. And a lot of times like up until now, I've still been defaulting to Rhino because if I need to do something, I know I can like go and do it quickly. It's incredibly frustrating, but there is a learning curve, um, switching, switching programs. So like one of the areas that I have struggled is around the idea of constraints. Okay. So through all, through this whole process, you're using constraints. Do you, does that hold true for SolidWorks as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that in most solid modeling, probably CAD, like mm -hmm. you are dealing with some type of mm -hmm. constraints. Mm -hmm. Can you just give a little oversight? on like how you think of constraints and like the power behind so them. So constraints are specific to a sketch. So a lot of actually designing in CAD is 2D. Like you're you're sketching and you're modifying sketches. That's a huge percentage of it. And inside of a sketch, you can have constraints where it's, for example, if you have three holes in the knife that you know are always the same, I've got three, you know, quarter inch diameter holes it's kind of silly to put a little dimension tool on each one that says quarter inch, quarter inch, quarter inch. Cause let's say down the road, you're like, well, now I'm buying three sixteenths hardware. I don't need them to be quarter inch. I have to click on this one, change it to three sixteenths, click on this one, change it to three sixteenths. Like why have three definitions of something that you know is always going to be equal. So what you right. do is you dimension one of them and you constrain the three holes to be equal at all times. So that right. when you change the one dimension, it propagates and it, it's, it's a efficiency thing, but it's more importantly, it catches errors. Cause let's say for example, I was actually opening those up to two, five, two, like I wanted them to be two thou larger for clearance. How you can't tell visually that you've changed all three very easily, right? What if one of them on accident was too small and you right. used cam and you machined it, it is going to be two thou too small. Right. So if you, if you know, they're always going to be equal, you should only have to dimension one thing that makes, right. and then the scale, if you know the, the holes in the scale are always going to be equal, those are projections of these three holes. So by changing one dimension, you're changing the three holes on the blade. You're changing the three holes on the left handle and the right handle all at once. Right. And that's constraints. And that's just one is you can set different things to be equal, like three circles to be equal three lines to be of equal length, like on jimping, uh, you can set equal spacing so that when you like set the dimension of the spacing, they all spread out in that equal amount. Right. Or you can set things forced, uh, constrained to be parallel. Not that common on my designs. I don't have a lot of parallel lines, but maybe in a folder you have your lock frame, your lock face on the blade and the lock face on the like lock insert or handle. You, probably want to constrain those to be parallel, right? Right. Things like that. So constraining and you don't want to over constrain to where it's like the models, like 
not flexible, right? It's not like you need it to be constrained in only the exact ways that you know it needs to be. So that's something I'm still struggling with. I, a lot of times I will do something and it and Fusion will tell me over constrained. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I don't even understand what I did mm-hmm. that over constrained it because some because Fusion is is essentially adding constraints sometimes where it thinks you want them, yeah. right? Or where it like makes it sense. sometimes makes assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. It's making assumption. And like that is, that's been like part of the learning curve where I get in and I'm like, Oh, like why can't I change this? Or like, why am I getting this error code? I just, when I saw you using them, I immediately saw like the power mm-hmm. of them, but like also the, the, um, kind of like the hurdles around them, like an area that you would use them. That's really interesting is like around, uh, beveling the blade. Mm-hmm. So you're creating a sketch with constraints that literally allows you to modify w- the way that the blade is ground for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, mm-hmm. just by going in and modifying the geometry around that first sketch. Yep. Which might be something like a triangle. Yeah. Yeah. That is, crazy but you do have to have like a, i think a fairly high level understanding of both constraints and the way that you're using sketches to drive you know modeling or features yeah yeah using constraints right. is you're playing with fire a little bit because you can get into over constrained situations but i can tell you right now like as with anything with a computer it's not going to do anything that actually doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah, sometimes it can have a brain fart, but like generally speaking, it's going to do exactly what you tell it and you can get constraints going that are confusing sometimes. And, but it's like, you'll, it's one of the things that you, I just learned and it, those are the things that drive people crazy and they want to throw their computer out the window. Yeah. But the, the odds that the, the CAD program is making an, a true error is not zero like it does happen but it's like right. pretty low it's probably like for example if i wanted to change the d- diameter of the hole in the scale but that scale hole is a projection and i go to dimension it it's gonna be like no over constrained because that hole is a downstream the diameter is being collected from that hole that you projected from right so if you didn't realize that and you try to dimension it it's going to give you an error message and you'd be like why do i have an error message it's like well right you already defined with the whole diameter. You can't do it twice. Right. Right. So there's, that's like the, that's like checking your work or problem solving. Like, like you're saying, probably not the program having an error. You just have to kind of dig in a little bit and figure out what you did that it doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Man, it's crazy because I feel like we could probably go on for about three hours. Oh, easily. As we're talking, I'm just realizing there's so many little elements and nuances. And we're not even talking. It's like not like you're teaching a class on CAD. You're just talking about like kind of basic principles around the way that you work. Um, man, it is it is really, really cool. Is there anything that so around constraints, is there are there any like quick and dirty rules or kind of guidelines that you have for someone or for yourself? Um, uh, that's a good question. Honestly, use constraints sparingly, but deliberately when you do. Right. And make sure everything ends up being dimensioned in some way. And this sounds weird, but like 
like the blade length, maybe you're going for a visual look of a balanced blade length. And so you're mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't really care too much about the dimension. You're just worried about the aesthetic. I get it. That's like, that doesn't mean that it doesn't need dimensioned. So the blade right. length should be dimensioned. And here's why if you 3d print one and you're like, Oh, it's too, too short. I'm going to make it uh, a little bit longer. So you just kind of click and drag and then you 3d print it. And you're like, well, somewhere in between there is actually what I probably want. It's like, well, what was it before? And what is it now? You have, you have no idea. So right. it's like, if you're like, okay, it was four inches. I made it four and a quarter. Let's try four and an eighth. So the dimension just gives you the ability to kind of re- recall and like have at least yeah. like an actual numerical value to what you're actually doing. And so like all dimension things where the dimension just like the the bevel height, right? How high up it climbs. Mm-hmm. For me, I need room for my logo. I want it to match up with the handle. I want it to be a good balance. It's, it is strictly a visual thing that I'm going for, but I have a dimension on it. So it's like, if it seems too high, I can change it by 20 thou, 30 thou, go yeah. back up, down by changing yeah. a number as opposed to just dragging it because going by eye, it can get messy, I guess. Well, that again, it's just a best practice. Mm-hmm. Like you're better off being able to be precise, even if the precision isn't critical yeah. from like the quality of the, part. it's like the, it's like the precision versus accuracy conversation. It's totally. like the number doesn't matter. Right. what that actual dimension is, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be there because you need the accuracy right. or you need the precision from it, but you, you don't need, need it to be accurate. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think is like critical to the way that you design as it relates to CAD? Um, rapid iteration. Don't be okay. afraid to 3d print when it's like barely even started. I'll I'll literally do a sketch and I know it's going to be fancy and all this cool stuff. I'll throw some chamfers on it. I won't even have a bevel on it and I'll 3d print it because I want to have a feedback loop. That's the whole idea of 3d printing is rapid prototyping. If you're not, if you're spending two days modeling and you haven't 3d printed yet, I would say that's could, if it were me, I would do it differently. I would, I'd have a 3d print like every few hours until you yes. have at least the shape where you want it. And it's like, yeah. I'll have 10 3D prints of a knife. And it's like, I haven't even, I don't even have a pocket clip on the thing. I don't even have right. like all this stuff. It's like, it's very, very rough when I start 3D this printing. This is better, faster. Yeah. This is true. Because I do a similar thing. Like when I was hand sketching, I would do that. I would yeah. like, I would get to a point and I would cut out a paper, you know, template and then at a point i would just go and i would glue one down to a piece of lexan i would cut that out at this point even when i was working in rhino i would get to a point and i would just send it over to the laser and i would laser cut one yeah it's never the thing yeah out of the game you're always making changes i think that is actually like maybe a fantastic place to like end Mm -hmm. this one on um which is iterate fail early fail often yes yeah um, dude, thanks so much. I feel like we really did just brush the surface, but mm. I, I want, I didn't, I don't want to like, I didn't want to go too far in. And I, I felt like kind of the stuff that we talked about foundationally set someone on the right path. Even if they're already working in CAD, I think it's like a good, a good lens to kind of like look at and be like, Hey, like when I'm doing this, like 
how do how do I deal with these problems? How am I creating a robust model? Like where where is the like you know redundancy? Not from redundancy st- standpoint, but like from a fail safe standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's a I think that's like a good good intro to the TJ method. Good. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for having me on your podcast, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, anytime. Um, love to have you back sometime. Uh, I would like to know a few things. Um, do you think there's ever a chance that you would do an online CAD course? I have been kicking around that idea for a long time and I think it's got to happen, but I just don't know when I'd find the time. But yeah, if enough people yell at me, maybe I, I'll do it. So I don't do know. you think, do you think that... <clears throat> us doing lessons and recording it is a viable way of doing that? Or do you think it's easier for you to do it completely solo? That's a great question. Like imagine if you and I did, did almost like, like you do a half hour episode where like I come in, I'm like, all right, I want to like model my knife and we're doing it, but I'm having to actually ask the questions as I'm learning. We should definitely do that to, to try it out. To test yeah, it. That, okay. That would be fun. Even just from like yeah. a curriculum builder yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Okay. Um, are there any resources for someone who like is not using CAD that wants to use CAD that you would recommend? If you're not using Fusion 360 yet and you're listening to this and you have any interest in this industry, it needs to be on your computer. You can get, I believe, like a free version and it, it's limited, but not in the ways that anything we just discussed, you can do all that with the free right. version, download it, start playing with it. And then YouTube in general is just full of videos. I can't recommend like anyone specifically because I learned on SolidWorks and I, right. that was a long time ago. And when I went to fusion, I didn't, I felt like I only had to Google certain things, but like the actual muscle memory going from SolidWorks to fusion was pretty quick. Yeah. So I was impressed. Like you definitely adapted. Well, I didn't really learn fusion as a beginner would learn fusion is all I'm saying. So you just change YouTube, just YouTube it. I would say I I could add Titans of CNC. Yeah. 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 Um, they have a pretty good John Saunders. um, Yeah. Fusion model, uh, or like fusion program in there. Mm -hmm. It's, it's around like machined parts. It's Mm -hmm. not like anything to do with knife making, but that's not, that's not what's critical, right? It's like learn, just learning how to be conversational with the program. There's a guy named Lars. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, he's, if, yeah, if you look up Lars fusion 360, yeah. his YouTube channel yeah. will pop up yeah. and he's, I he's, forget what his sharp. last name is. And he's actually a machinist too. So yeah. So yeah. he's got a really good, yeah. a really good base. Um, and then, uh, let's like, uh, what's a parting question, man. Is there any book that you have read in the last three years that you would recommend to anyone? Any book not related to this, a- any book, um, I, the problem is a lot of them are history books, like Doesn't almost matter. every That's book. That's great. Um, yeah. I would say Operation Paperclip is like a very interesting book, but that's like, that is left field for, for this cool. conversation. But that's great. Operation Paperclip. I, it's a good book. I'll check it out. Um, dude, great having you on yeah. and, uh, look forward to talking again soon. Sounds good. Peace. <laughs> All right. See you guys. Bye.